Hi, everyone. Welcome to this edition of Royal Lions Radio. I'm your host, Bill DeFilippo, talking to my co-host today, Matt DeBear. Matt, um, after what happened last week, uh, a 22-to win over Wisconsin feels pretty good. Yeah, it was, and we'll talk about it here. It was, it was a weird, it was a very on-brand Penn State football game for the 2018 season. It's probably a good way to start this off. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm trying to go back to what after they, you know, started the season going 45 points, 51 points, 63 points, 63 points, and say like, yeah, scoring 22 points and uh, having nine of them come on field goals is on-brand for this team, but. Whatever, uh, twenty-two to ten, Nittany Lion win as we mentioned against uh, the Wisconsin Badgers pushes Penn State to seven and three on the season. Uh, Trace McSorley had a, uh, in terms of yardage, not a huge day, one hundred and sixty yards, but was nineteen for twenty-five with the touchdown. The big performer was Miles Sanders, twenty-three carries, one hundred and fifty-nine yards, and the score uh, through the air. McSorley. Uh, spread the ball around a little bit. DeAndre Tompkins and Miles Sanders were the only uh, non-freshman or redshirt freshman to catch balls. We're going to talk about that. Uh, Yeter Gross Matos and Robert Windsor had good games along the defensive line. Micah Parsons had a good game uh, at linebacker. And uh, Matt, I think the place to start with this one is the defense because it looked like it was going to be a pretty long day. Penn State gets the ball, punts, uh, Wisconsin gets the ball back, three plays, 79 yards on the third play of their drive. Jonathan Taylor goes 71 yards for a touchdown. That would be the last touchdown that uh, Wisconsin would score all day. So I, I guess the question is, why did Penn State settle in after Wisconsin's first drive where they were able to get that big run that we've come to expect out of Wisconsin football to uh, you know find, uh, find the end zone? Well, I'm not sure I'd... Yeah, I guess you consider it settling in because of, you know, the first series, big scorer, et cetera. But I think it really was they stuck to the game plan. They didn't let Taylor breaking the big run where really both safeties got caught cheating down low a little bit, and neither Scott nor uh, Taylor really took a great angle from, from the replays that I saw in the stadium. And so I think it was uh, something I've talked about a fair amount throughout the year is they didn't panic, they didn't oh, God, you know, what we're doing isn't going to work. Three plays in and we're already down 7 nothing. I think they stuck with the game plan and let the defensive line, which is something I'm probably going to harp on quite a bit over the next mm-hmm. hour or so, they really let the defensive line take over the game. And you saw it with Robert Windsor being Big Ten Player of the Week. Etor Gross Matos had a big game with uh, um, the sacks. Sharif Miller had a couple sacks. But they really, I think felt going in that they could control the line of scrimmage, which is saying something given the the prowess of Wisconsin's offensive line. Um, and I think they also, and I'd, I'd have to watch the tape a little bit closer to say this, but I got the impression from just watching the way the linebackers attacked that they were pretty comfortable in, in trusting the secondary to hold up against uh, backup quarterback Jack Cohn and the hodgepodge of, of receivers that Wisconsin rolls out there. So they really were able to sell out against the run. And other than, like you said, that big play, they really kept Taylor in check. Yeah, he had a lot of yards. He averaged, I think you just told me, about six yards a carry outside of the big run. But it was a lot of, you know, five yards, seven yards. It wasn't and it wasn't consistent enough to be able to maintain it. It was, um, they did a, a very good job of, okay, if you want to take the, the six yards at a time, 
you're not going 80 yards to do that. It was, it was a very, um, very logical game plan, I think, against a very one-dimensional offense. Yeah, and it's it's weird because like if you my, my guess is that if you go up to someone from Wisconsin and say Jonathan Taylor is going to run the ball for 20, 20 times for one hundred and eighty five yards at a touchdown, they're going to feel really good about their chances of winning that football game. But kind of like you mentioned, I, first things first, I want to preface all of this. Uh, I work Saturdays, and as a lot of you know, I write about basketball for a living, uh, and of course uh, the. Jimmy Butler trade happened like as this game started, so I didn't get a chance to watch it too close. So if you're looking for you know actual good detailed analysis, uh, well, you should never listen to this podcast, but especially don't listen to it this week because I'm way out of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, Penn State. It really did seem like it, it seemed like they kind of needed to see that they needed to kind of have Taylor break that one big one against them, uh, just so they didn't. You, you know, really focused them. It really got them into a place where uh, sometimes I think it's good that you know it can happen, if that makes sense. And I think it was good for them to know that Jonathan Taylor, despite what, you know, you see it on film all the time, you hear people talk about it, all that stuff. Sometimes you need to see the guy who's capable of busting off a 70-yard carry bust off that 70-yard carry and get into the end zone. So, I think they saw that. I think they got a chance to kind of uh, respond to that. The defense, it forces them to lock in a little bit more. Uh, There was, uh, I I think, what everyone is probably screaming at their computers about and screaming at this podcast about for what they want us to say, and I think there's probably some merit to it. After that happened, Micah Parsons played a ton. And when Micah Parsons plays a ton... Good things generally happen. He's the biggest, most physical, best athlete they have at linebacker. And he's able to impact a game in a way, and he's able to shed blocks in a way that someone, you know, like Koa Farmer or Jan Johnson might not be able to do. So I think that probably ended up playing a big role in it. And like you said, the defensive line for Penn State, coming into the season, we knew that Wisconsin despite what you expect out of Wisconsin, didn't especially have a strong offensive line, Matt. But even knowing that, um, I, don't th- I, I don't think any of us could have expected Penn State's defensive front to have dominated to the extent that it did because it really, really, after that first drive, it was like they said to Wisconsin, okay, we're done playing around. You're not getting anything on us after this. Yeah, and I think it's, like I said, it's they've really done a good job probably in the last, I don't know, going back to the Michigan State game probably, as a, as a defensive line at least, um, of really taking that next step. I think we knew that they were pretty good at end with Sharif Miller and Gross Matos and Shaka Tonians in situational pass rushing and now getting Shane Simmons back from the injury. Um, I think as good as they've been, the emergence and consistent play from Givens, who's shown flashes, but really Robert Windsor probably in the last month has really started to become more than just kind of the the space eater that he's been up to this point in his career. And that's allowed guys like Miller and and Gross Matos to really take that next step and make those big plays. Um, I saw the stat earlier today that um, and keep in mind that he's a, only a true sophomore, but Gross Matos um, has 15 and a half tackles for loss with two games left this year. Only seven players 
in the history of Penn State have have uh, 20 or more tackles for loss in one season. So that keeping in mind who is coming up on the schedule, especially this weekend, it's not that <laughs> it's it's not a, a huge leap to say that he might become the eighth guy to do that. He joined names like Courtney Brown. Uh, Aaron Maben, LeVar Arrington, Bruce Clark are just a few of the names on that list. Uh, Michael Haynes, who actually uh, tops that list along with uh, Courtney Brown and Larry Kubin. I have this list in front of me as we speak. I did not pull that from memory. Um, those three guys had 23 tackles for loss. Um, longtime fans of the program surely remember Michael Haynes' insane breakout year in, uh, in 2002 for that team that led to a first-round uh, draft pick by the Bears, I believe. Um, but that the kind of company that he's in with names like that, and I think you know, Aaron Maben had that unbelievable season back in 2008 before he he went pro. Um, we've kind of taken for granted, I think, because it's kind of become it's kind of come in the last just handful of games, just how good he already is, and we're getting at least one more year of it. Um, yeah. yeah. But it's the emergence to going back to to the tackles. It's the emergence of, of Windsor and and Givens that's allowed those guys to get more favorable matchups. I think. Yeah, and I'm actually I'm looking at it right now. Uh, I'm just going to go down tackles and sacks for uh, Grosmontos this season. Three tackles against Appalachian State. Three tackles and half a sack against Pitt. Two tackles and a sack against uh, Kent State. One tackle against Illinois starts ramping it up a bit. Four against Ohio State. Uh, four tackles and a sack against Michigan State in the last few weeks. Ten tackles and two sacks against Indiana. Nine and two sacks against Iowa. Four and a sack against Michigan. Five and a sack against uh, Wisconsin. What he has done is he has gotten better as the year has gotten along, and he's. I, I, we've all known the potential that he has at his size, his length, his athleticism, his power, his speed. He has it all. And it's amazing how much better the rest of your defensive line, and really your defense in general, is able to look when you have that one unblockable guy up there. And Gross Matos has always had that ability. And now he's starting to put it together. And once he starts cooking and he starts, you know, suddenly you have to have, a, you can't put a tackle one-on-one -on -one there. So either you bring a tight end in and you take someone out of your passing game or you bring your guard over to block him. And then it's, you know, three hats on three hats along the rest of the line. That makes things easier for a guy like Robert Windsor, for a guy like Kevin Givens, for whomever is his bookend. I mean, we've been talking about how great Gross Matos has been with uh, 15 and a half tackles for loss and eight sacks. Sharif Miller has 10 and a half tackles for loss and six sacks. Robert Windsor, eight tackles for loss and five and a half sacks. Penn State's defensive line has been eating, and it's been a blast watching as they've gotten to go over these last few weeks. They were definitely helped out a bit against uh, Wisconsin, I think, by... Uh, I don't think, Matt, you or I would say that Alex Hornibrook is a game-changer at corner, quarterback, but he's a veteran guy. He's a guy... He's not going to make terrible, mind-boggling mistakes. And I don't mean just like interceptions, which, you know, Jack... Uh, you know, Jack Cohn, he had two of them... Uh, He's a very talented young quarterback, and he could end up being a very good quarterback someday, but he's not there now. Nine for 20, those two interceptions are what sticks out. Also sticks out to me that on 20 pass attempts, he had 60 yards. It's the fact that he's holding onto the ball a little bit too long. 
all this stuff that is a mix of he's not ready and he's also going up against a defensive line that's cooking, it makes it so Penn State can sell out on Jonathan Taylor. And he's able to get his, and a deal was able to get his when he ran the ball. But on the whole, Penn State was able to kind of slow them down. Uh, and I think uh, one, what we need to talk about now, uh, now that we've fawned over the defensive line a little bit, is we kind of got to move to linebacker because uh, this is the first game where Micah Parsons has uh, established himself as playing playing the line shares of the snaps. I mean, Dan did snap counts this week. Uh, at the will, Parsons played 46 snaps and Koa Farmer played 12. At the Sam, Cam Brown played 49 and Mark, Micah Parsons played four. Micah Parsons played the most snaps of any Penn State linebacker. So, I, I mean, is I, I don't know about you, but and I know this might not necessarily be the most a respectful approach to Koa Farmer in his last couple of games. I have a very hard time seeing the case for Micah Parsons to not be on the field every snap that his body allows him to be on the field. Yeah, I think what allowed them this week um, is partially the scheme. And I've don't get me wrong, Parsons needs needs to be playing more and ne- has been needing to play more even before Saturday, but there's been a handful of instances throughout the year that kind of underscore why they've been hesitant, I think, to put him in there more often against um, a lot of teams. Um, There was one of the plays against Iowa where he very clearly um, was either didn't understand the play or misread the play and ended up leaving – I believe it was Font wide open down the sideline and Stanley missed him. Um, There's been a a handful of plays like that where his inexperience, I think, and um, not just at the college level, but at linebacker in general, has come into play a little bit. So I think they've been a little cautious, probably overly cautious, with when they roll him out there against teams that do have more of a threat to pass it than Wisconsin did between Cone and their their lack of really that game-breaking receiving option. Um, so I think the the run first mindset of Wisconsin's offense really played a part in it, but I think too you've seen fewer and fewer of those those mental concerns that the coaching staff has from week to week, and I think they've given him more and more to bite off, and he's he's handled it. So I think it's it's really easy, you know, as the guys that sit here and and watch highlight tapes from high school and and hear the way his teammates and, and coaches rave about his, his ability. But I, I think they're, they've been, like I said, overly cautious. He needed to play more, but I think there's there was a reason why it's taken this long and a reason why Wisconsin was the game where where it became apparent that, that this is a game where he can thrive and, and put him in a situation where he's going to be successful. Yeah, I mean, there's the balance to it. You want someone to be out there to learn and to cut their teeth and to get reps and figure things out. And you kind of, you do have to balance that to uh, an extent with, you can't have them out there too much uh, because if they make too many mistakes, that's something that even for a guy who uh, like Parsons, who by all accounts is the most confident person on earth that can get to you. Um, But at this point, I mean, Wisconsin's in the rear view the next two teams on the schedule are a Rutgers team where 
He is um, not. He wouldn't just be their best linebacker. He'd be their best literally everything. Um, that includes running back and maybe tight end and perhaps quarterback. I don't know. You kind of have to give him as many snaps as he can get. Just let him get out there. Let him, you know, don't keep him out there again if he's making major mistakes, but let him go. Let him see what he can do. I mean, against Maryland, Maryland's going to be a great test for him. That is a really, really funky football team. I, I, you know as well as I do that what Maryland's going to want to do offensively. They're going to try and move a lot of guys around. They're going to try and confuse them. They're going to try just to do that sort of stuff. And that's a really good chance for Parsons to kind of see where he's at mentally and where he is with the mental aspect of the game and being able to read things before they happen. So going forward, I think he, and I'm interested in hearing your thought on this, these last two weeks, I think, you know, I just said this, as long as his body will let him be out there, he has to be the guy. Oh, I, I totally agree. I think um, Rutgers isn't going to do anything that would cause you to question whether he can hold up against it. It's probably the best way to describe it. I, and I think it's the game where regardless of mistakes he may make, where you expect your offense to be able to get the points back if it, if it comes to that. So, um, and then like you said, Maryland, I think is, is another game where, they have enough good players and their scheme is is unique enough where I think it's a game where you can throw a lot at them. Um, I think the most important part of all this, though, is going to be the four, five weeks, whatever it actually adds up to, leading up to the bowl game, where um, those 15 practices, especially for a team like Penn State, not just at linebacker, but it's what we're talking about here, so I'll focus on it, but getting Micah Parsons, who is probably staying at linebacker, um, in the immediate and long-term future, in my opinion, just based on how they've recruited the end defensive end position, it's a chance for him to get 15 practices that kind of gets you back to fundamentals. I think Franklin talks a lot about this in his, you know, in his preparation for bowl games that their first seven, eight, nine practices are totally irrelevant relative to who they're playing. It's back to fundamentals. It's back to what Penn State football does as far as, you know, what they run defensively, what they run offensively. And it's an opportunity for a guy like Parsons to now with 12 games of action under his belt to apply all those lessons, get some, some time to refocus on, on this, the, the system, on the fundamentals of the linebacker position and really, take that next step. And I think that's one of the things I'm really excited about with this red shirt rule, just to, to digress briefly is it's an opportunity for all those players, whether they're registering or not to get that, that chance to practice more, not only that, but also then apply it in a game down the road against a good team that, you know, whoever ends up being on the other sideline, um, that month of December into late December, early January is going to be so big for, for Micah Parsons to bring this full circle, but also for a lot of these really young players that Penn State's going to rely on not only in the bowl game, but going into next season. Real quick, uh, just because you kind of touched on that, I'm going to put you on the spot. Who do you want to see Penn State play in the bowl? I'm glad you asked me. Um, if all things being equal, 
I think West Virginia, mm-hmm. and and I know it's not probably the best matchup from a oh good Penn State's going to be a touchdown favorite in here. They're probably going to be an old four or five point underdog, I guess, on a neutral field. Um, but we've talked a lot about, especially on the defensive side of the the ball, how much Penn State's improved, really at just about every position. I think you could argue, um, and I think going against an offense like West Virginia would be a really interesting challenge. I think it'd be a really fun game because you give Trace McSorley a month to, to rest up. I think you give a, a, an offensive staff time to, to kind of plan and, and drill down on, on one specific team and, and what they do that can work against it. I'll tell you the one team, two teams I do not want to play. Can I guess one of them? Absolutely. Central Florida. I think that'd be fun for a lot of the same reasons. Okay. I think it'd be, it, it's, it's, it falls in the category of the the one team I definitely don't want to play, which is Kentucky. It's one of those teams. I think Kentucky's pretty good, but it's it's a no win situation for Penn State. It's a te- if you win, you were supposed to win. If you lose, oh my God, you lost to Kentucky. Real real quick, real quick. Uh, you know how Kentucky was uh, ranked like eleventh in the country two weeks ago. Guess where they are in S and P Plus right now. I'm gonna say like twenty eight. Uh, you were right with the eight. You were wrong with the two. They are 48th. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Kentucky is way worse than you think they are. We, we could do a great podcast on me just ranting for like a half an hour about how like a handful of non-conference wins by SEC teams have horribly overrated most of that conference. <laughs> uh, but yeah, who's the other team? Um, Texas A&M. And it's, I've only yeah. seen it projected one or two places, but just it's, it's incredibly uninteresting. There's, there's nothing compelling about that game well, for me. I, the, the opportunity to see uh, Penn State give Jimbo Fisher a pile driver would be pretty cool. But otherwise, yes, I agree with you. But yeah, uh, give, me, uh, give me my beloved Mountaineers. Uh, their passing offense is hot fire. Um, they just kind of sling it around. Will Greer is an an absolute badass. Uh, they have a pair of pretty decent backs and Kennedy McCoy and Whitey Brown. Uh, and uh, Martel Petaway's been pretty good too, yeah. And then David Sills and Gary Jennings are as good of a one-two receiver group in the country. That game would be just an absolute blast. And yeah, like I, there's a very good chance Penn State would lose that game, but it would also be a really fun game. So yeah, why not? Let's uh, that that is I'm very strongly in that camp. Uh, and then I don't want to be the team that plays to and loses to UCF this year. So whatever, we'll cross the bridge when we get to it. Uh, real quick, uh, one last thing on the defense. Um, this is kind of a broad question, uh, Matt, but. They're 14th in defensive S&P Plus. Uh, They had a a bit of a stinker against uh, Indiana, but their uh, percentile performances since the bye, 82% against Michigan State, 90% against Iowa, 51% against Michigan, 80% against Wisconsin. Generally, if not for a bunch of turnovers, they beat Michigan State. the Iowa game was just as weird as a Penn State-Iowa game. It was supposed to be the defense was not the problem against Michigan, against Michigan, and it allowed one touchdown against Wisconsin. So it's been really, really good this year, especially in these last couple of weeks, the last month, month and a half or so. What is it in your eyes that makes this defense so good? Well, I think it's, it's twofold. The one is 
the defensive line, like I mentioned a couple of times for, for all the reasons I've mentioned. I think the other one though is for all their struggles over the first month or so of the season, the secondary, especially guys like John Reed and um, Oruwarie, I think have really found their games. Um, yeah, they they haven't been perfect. And when you play a position like cornerback, every mistake you make ends up on film because it ends up in a big play. It's amplified. Or, exactly. And it's easy to focus on you know, Oruwarie getting beat by Felton Davis against Michigan State or – you know, John Reed missed that tackle again. You know, you know, pick pick a, a situation, but by and large, those two guys, along with the rest of the secondary, especially the cornerbacks, have been really good. I think, and that combination of a really good aggressive defensive line and a secondary that's not giving up a whole lot is is a lethal combination. It's hard for, and you saw, you know, an offense that's been as efficient as Michigan's has been struggled for a big chunk of that game to move the ball with any level of consistency. And I think that's a, a, a testament to the work that those two units have done. I think there's still a, a, a big drop down from the, from the line in the secondary to linebacker, but it's not as big as it has been. I think Jan Johnson has really come on. I think when we talked about Micah Parsons has really um, added to that group. And there, there's, there's catching up still to be done, but I think just in general, all three position groups on the defense have improved. And for a group that lost essentially the middle of the defense out from last year's team, that was the spot where we kind of thought we're going to be, was going to be the issue for this year. And it, and it was for the first six games, give or take. And those guys that are being that are taking on bigger roles this year have have started to grow into them, and that's that's really all you can ask for for a team that relies on a lot of mm-hmm. young young slash inexperienced players. Yeah, and I, I look at what did we say the concerns were at the beginning of the year was that the veteran guys or the upperclassmen, you know, are a little rough around the edges. Your Nick Scotts, your Jan Johnson, and your even to an extent Robert Windsor and Kevin Gibbons, guys like that. Even a John Reed coming off of a knee injury, or the young guys still need a little bit of seasoning. The Garrett, Ta- I'm, you know, I know Garrett Taylor has been in this program for a million years, but a guy like a Garrett Taylor who is new to a position as uh, a first-time starter, a guy like a Micah Parsons, a guy like uh, Yitor Grossmatos or uh, Tariq Castro-Field. It was just a weird mix, and it seems like it's just evened out over the last couple of weeks. I'm glad you mentioned Jan Johnson because like, he is as athletically limited of a player as you will see playing at a team with, you know... New Year, uh, starting for a team with New Year's Six aspirations. But he makes up for that with the fact that he knows where he has to be at all times. He knows this defense. There are times when he gets burned. I mean, he got annihilated on Taylor's touchdown run, but he understands what he has to do. A guy like Garrett Taylor, who has really grown into being a starting safety, a guy, you know, Micah Parsons, Cam Brown, They've as they've gotten more snaps, they've gotten better and better. And I think it's just been a little bit of just everyone learning what they have to do and figuring out what they have to do and taking their licks and games 
like against Ohio State, like against uh, Michigan State, like against Michigan, even the close wins against Iowa and Indiana and Appalachian State, you learn from games like that and you get better as you go along. And I, I really think we, Penn State fans in general, really underrate how good Brent Pry is as a defensive coordinator. Uh, Penn State's defenses under him, uh, like I mentioned, they're 14th in uh, defensive S&P Plus this year. Last year, Penn State was uh, 12th in defensive S&P Plus. The year before that, Penn State was 14th in defensive S&P Plus. It is a consistent top 20 defense. And that is something that I think Penn State fans take for granted because that's just what we are used to at this school. But I really have been impressed with him and what he's and how he has, even in games where the team has struggled, they have guys who are able to make plays. And you get the sense that should he stick around, which I don't know if he's going to, I mean, he's He's definitely someone who can move on to get a head coaching job if he would like one. You get a sense that as more and more talent is getting into the program, and because they're still starting, I, I mean, Nick Scott was a three-star guy. Jan Johnson was a walk-on. Robert Windsor and Kevin Givens were three-star guys. Uh, I think Sharif Miller was like a borderline three-slash-four-star guy. Like, as they're getting five-star talent into this program at just about every position or high four-star talent at just about every position, it's going to make Brent Pry look like an even better defensive coordinator. And it's going to be like, I am very excited for the future of this Penn State defense uh, because I really do think that despite the fact that, again, 14th in defensive S&P Plus this year, uh, 43rd in rushing S&P Plus, 15th in passing S&P Plus. There's a whole lot of room for it to get better, and I think that's absolutely going to happen. Uh, let's move to the other side of the ball. Let's talk about Penn State's offense, and I think the only place for us to start is with Miles Sanders, who coming into this game was uh, a bit of an afterthought. He got absolutely nothing going uh, against Michigan, nothing, not too terribly much against Iowa, not too terribly much against Indiana. Had a big game against Michigan State, but it had been a few weeks since he sh reminded everyone why he is such a talented back. There was a report that he uh, he and the running backs went into the offensive lines meeting room and like gave them a bit of a rousing speech. We believe in you guys. We think you guys. We know what you guys can do. Let's get out there and let's show what we can do against this Wisconsin team. And they went out and did it. So Matt, like just if you would like to talk about Miles Sanders' big day and why this is something that Penn, it's been a long time coming and it's something that Penn State needed. Well, I think I mentioned this somewhere on the site leading up to the game, uh, probably in the round table on Friday. Um, but he was, there was a bit of a reprieve on Saturday as far as the level of, of competition, as far, you know, at least in terms of rushing defense that uh, Penn State was going up against after you know Michigan State, great running defense. Indiana sneaky good against the run. Iowa good against the run. Michigan obviously very good against everything. Wisconsin solid, but not nearly on the level of of those other teams by and large against the run. And it's it's easy to forget how talented he is because he doesn't have the 
he's not known for the highlight plays like Saquon Barkley was. And he actually certainly has has a few, but it's not it's not you know the every time he touches the ball something crazy might happen feeling you got with with Barkley and it, it's horribly unfair to him that that's the the level he's judged on to some degree but his his vision we talked about this earlier in the year his vision is is really really at a really high level his strength um, you've seen it at times this year to you know not only run through tackles but also um, move the pile. Um, and then he does have that, that explosiveness at, at times to, to run away from guys. And I think he finally, for the first time in about a month, had the opportunity to do that. Um, and you go back to the Michigan state game and he had the, the couple of big plays, but by and large, they controlled him. You know, he, the game got away from them quickly enough against Michigan. It was pretty obvious that they just weren't going to have success running the ball with him because of the, the strength of Michigan's defense. But they, they found they they found something very early, just offensively as a whole. You look at the number of, of plays they ran to the to the boundary, both with the screen plays and getting Sanders the ball on the outside. They there was a very much a concerted effort made to get get him involved and just really involve the running game as a whole. You know, they saw a lot of runs by uh, by McSorley. You saw Tommy Stevens came in and ran the ball a fair amount. You saw Ricky Slade get some action. So I think there was a a very clear plan going in to run the ball more, and the way the game played out, it was pretty obvious to me at least that the the plan became we're the better team, we don't need to take chances throwing the ball, we don't need to drop McSorley back where they have a chance to to hit him and cause a fumble or a turnover or something along those lines, where they were they were going to rely on their their five-star running back rely on on the running game as a whole and and Sanders is obviously more than good enough to take advantage of that. Yeah, I mean Wisconsin is a uh you know, they play that 3-4 defense. You're going to be able to get to the second level not easily. I mean, it's never easy to get to the second level against a team like Wisconsin, but Looking at this game, Penn State's stuff rate, so uh, rushes that were met at the line or behind the line of scrimmage, was 14%. There was space for whether it was Miles Sanders or you know Trace McSorley on the instances that he did get a chance to tuck it and run. There was that little bit of space, and they were able to to get into that second level, I mean, Sanders more than McSorley, obviously, and they were able to do that. And they mentioned on the broadcast a few times that, uh, you know, coming into this week, all the hype was around Taylor, just because it's always around Taylor whenever he goes into a game because it's fantastic. And Sanders used this week as a chance to show out a little bit. I mean, he didn't have, you know, Taylor had that 71-yard touchdown run. Sanders' longest run of the day was 29 yards. He just kept pounding, and he kept being a really efficient back, and it ended up working for Penn State. And of course, Penn State's offense is so much more dangerous when that threat of running the ball is established. And when you're able to get Miles Sanders cooking a little bit, it makes life easier on Trace McSorley. And seeing as how he got sacked two times, and you know, while he didn't have the most explosive uh, game of his life in the passing game, which we will talk about probably why... Uh, in a second, uh, 19 for 25, I believe, uh, 
Pro Football Focus said that uh, his adjusted completion percentage when he had drops and throwaways was something it led the nation this week. It was like 91% or something like that. So when you're going into a game like this, especially with a quarterback who we all know is not at 100% due to that bum knee, having something like this is huge. And having, a, having Miles Sanders have one of his best games of the season is something that is kind of invaluable for Penn State. And I think that uh, when, you know, looking back on this game, that was kind of the thing that, that was the thing that made it so Trace didn't have to throw the ball 500 times, which uh, that would have been a losing strategy this week. So that's, uh, it was big. It was really big. Uh, Moving on to the other major thing with this game, I wanted to talk about the offense. Like I mentioned at the top, a lot of emphasis on young guys catching footballs. Jahan Dotson, two receptions, 39 yards. K.J. Hamler, uh, five for 35. Pat Fryerma, three for 34. Cam Sullivan Brown, one for nine. Justin Shorter, one for three. The only non-freshman or redshirt freshman to catch passes, DeAndre Tompkins, five catches, 31 yards, and a touchdown. Miles Sanders, two catches, nine yards. Uh, Matt, what... Do you make of the emphasis on freshman receivers? Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? And no matter what, are you happy this is something that Penn State is doing? Oh, I think it's it's gotten to the point where they had to. Um, and mm-hmm. I think part of it was forced by Johnson, Juwan Johnson's injury. I think, you know, for as much as he's struggled this year, um, he hasn't been as, as roundly... Uh, Crippling seems overly harsh, but that's probably accurate as Brandon Polk has been with drops and just a general lack of execution. Um, and I think it's gotten to the point where because Johnson's out, because Polk has been so ineffective, that you had to do something. And I'm mildly surprised that that something was putting Jahan Dotson outside just because... Um, and I don't really think I've, I've had an opportunity to either talk about this or write about this. He, he's not exceptionally big. There's a reason why he's he's been considered a slot guy up until about 12.05 on Saturday. And it's just because he's a not, – not just because he's a true freshman undersized. He's just a small guy. He's listed, I think, like a buck 65 and like 5'10 or 5'11, I believe. Yeah. And he's athletic, but he doesn't have that, that elite level of – of speed or make you miss where you can make up for, for that lack of size, like KJ Hamler, for example, um, mildly surprised that the move was not to put Mac Hippenhammer out there. Cause he's seen more time outside, but I think between kind of the way the game played out where you're at this season and looking big picture, it was the right thing to do just because you, you made the decision you're burning his red shirt. So, I don't know if he's reached the four games yet or not, but he's at this point he's played enough, and it, it's foolish not to. That it's it's you you got to get let him take his lumps to to a certain degree. Like we talked about with Parsons, you're not going to put him out there just to put him out there where he's going to, um, you know, fail to a level that's going to affect him long term. You you have to be careful about making sure you put those guys in in the right kinds of positions. But it it was time. And, you know, you could argue that maybe it needed to happen earlier. I'm not sure it changes the results of, of either of the, the two close losses or certainly not the Michigan loss. Um, 
but if you if you think you can get the right kind of matchup, then you have to give. And I'm focusing a lot on Dotson because he's the guy who's who's going to lose the red shirt this year. I still think they they hold shorter out of one of these last last two regular season games, and then he plays in the other one in the bowl game and maintains that red shirt because it's it's kind of pointless to let him play five when you can easily get away with the four and maintain that year if you need to. Um, but it's it's that point in the year where you've lost three games, you have an outside shot at a New Year's Six Bowl game, but that's about the 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 height of of what you're you're going to accomplish this year as far as major championships and things along those lines. So yeah, let the guys play. Let them. You'll get a chance to to play a pretty good defense in Wisconsin. They're going to get a chance to um, play a another team in Rutgers, um, and then and then you know. Depending on on how things play out, you know, there's the Maryland game and the bowl game where certainly the bowl game you're going to see those guys get a lot of run, I'm sure. Um, the Maryland game is interesting to me just because of the senior day factor and, and all those things that go into it. And you, you wonder how much run certainly Tompkins and Polk get, um, depending on how that game goes. But receivers is no different than any other position at this point in the year, I think, where you you have to, to run with the young guys to to a certain degree because that's that's what you do when you're in the position Penn State's in. Yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, one thing that you didn't touch on but is kind of hanging like a milestone around this receiving core's neck is that at this point, the receivers that Penn State has to throw out there has to be the guys they trust to catch the damn football. And... They obviously think that Jahan Dotson, rightfully so, I mean, the scouting report on him is that if you throw a football in his direction, he catches it, which eight targets, seven catches of the year, that makes sense. They obviously think he's a guy who could do that. It's why Pat Fryermuth has turned into such a reliable option, even if he's you know dropped one or two. It's why K.J. Hamler is such a reliable option. Like You need to put the guys out there who are just going to do the basic thing that you expect <laughs> receivers to do, because... DeAndre Tompkins throughout his career has had issues with that, even if he's you know been a generally passable receiver in his time here. Brandon Polk has had issues with drops. Matt Kippenhammer has dropped a few. Cam Sullivan Brown, I, I I think they're probably still trying to figure out what he is. So you're throwing, you have to throw out KJ Hammer, you have to throw out Pat Frydermuth, you have to throw out Jahan Dodson. If Justin Shorter is a guy who could do that, you have to throw him out too. Like I do disagree a little bit with you on trying to keep his red shirt because if he is, if Justin Shorter is as good as we all think Justin Shorter is and he is healthy, he's not going to be a guy who's here for five years anyway. Like I get wanting to have that option, but throw him out there and let the dude go. Let's see what he could do as the guy who is go very well could be the wide receiver one next year for this team. I mean, for how good KJ Hamler is, he there aren't many people in college football who have the pa- the all-around package that Justin Shorter has if it all works out. So get him some the money. Only, Go, ahead. The Go ahead. only thing I'd add to that is if, if we're in the middle of October and not the middle of November, then I'm absolutely with you on Shorter. I just think at, at this point he's played two games. You can win Saturday at Rutgers probably a week from then against Maryland one of those two games without him. And it's just, you know, it's very easy to say, yeah, he probably won't be here five years. And I, I certainly agree with that. 
but you're not you're not losing anything at this point by keeping him to the four games, letting him you know play in the bowl game, and, and just keep that option open for you know whatever may come down the road. It's just it's it's a nice option to have at just kind of given how things have played out with him specifically throughout the year with injuries and everything else. For sure, for sure. And yeah, I, I, I again, I still want to see what he can do. Like, I still want to see him get as much run as he possibly can. And, you know, he's a Jersey guy. If they want to have some fun, they'll walk into High Point Solutions Stadium or, or whatever the hell it's called now and let him have a big game in front of a Rutgers crowd that, gets a little bit angrier than usual when the kids from New Jersey on Penn State come and uh, have big performances against them. So there's that. Um, I, you know, I want to, I'd like to see a little Daniel George if I believe he's been in two, no, one game, I want to say. Uh, maybe I believe yeah, he just played against Kent State, I think. Yeah, so use him in these final few weeks if you think he can, uh, you, you know, just see what you have in him and then, where where appropriate, let Matt Kippenhammer get some snaps. Let uh, Cam Sullivan Brown get some snaps. Let Zach Coons get some snaps. All that kind of stuff. So yeah, I, th- I think the next the next two weeks in the bowl game, you're going to see a lot of those those big names mm-hmm. that haven't played much, if at all. Yeah, I get think, some yeah. run because I mean, there's nothing to lose at this point. I think all I think everyone except maybe Will Levis and Judge Culpepper and Aeneas Hawkins. Those are the three that I can offhand say have have not played at all. Everyone else, for the most part, has played one, maybe two, and so you, you have an opportunity here. And that's it's the beauty of the rule, and I think they've generally managed it pretty well yeah. as far as you know, getting guys a, a taste, see what they have, and then saving them for for this end of the year when you you know theoretically they've got more experience, they're more prepared to play. Yeah, I mean, looking through the guys. Uh, like you said, Levis, Bryce Effner, I, I don't think he's going to play at all. Uh, Charlie Catcher, probably the same. Isaiah Humphreys and A.S. Hawkins, Judge Culpepper, probably the same. Trent Gordon, I, I don't know if he's appeared on special teams or not, but then otherwise... He's, he's played a game or two, yeah. yeah. Otherwise, Daniel George, Nick Tarburton, Juice Scruggs, I think he might be one of those guys who's a little bit, eh. And then it's all just dudes... Un, except for maybe Rashid Walker, who I want to see get some run over these last few weeks so we can see what they can do. Uh, and I think that on the offense especially, kind of the last thing that I would like to talk about, a little bit more broadly, uh, has been the offense's inability to punch it into these end zone, the end zone these last few games. Uh, Michigan was obviously a very unique circumstance. Uh, Michigan State, they weren't able to do it. Indiana got a little bit dicey towards the end. The offense just wasn't especially great in general against Indiana, a 39 uh, percentile performance percentage. Iowa, again, the offense was a bit of the Achilles heel this year. The big plays in the passing game aren't there that I think we're all used to. The passing game in general just hasn't been great. It's been the rushing attack. Uh, and then just in general, in finishing drives, Penn State's 59th nationally, which when you think about where Penn State was at the beginning of the year, that is a bit of a surprise. So on the whole, Matt, why has this issue been happening? Well, I think it's... the. Biggest one is 
like you said, they have not been able to to hit the big play. It just hasn't been there really at all with maybe some level of consistency early in the year. But this is an offense that, for the most part, has relied a big part of what they do or have done the last two years has been hit the big play. And a lot of the guys that hit those big plays are, are playing at the next level now. So it's it's become... Um, it's it's just not there and they aren't consistent enough from an execution standpoint they aren't efficient enough and i don't know what the efficiency ratings are in s&p plus but i can't imagine they're terribly great and when you aren't terribly efficient it's hard to sustain drives and they're going to stall out you know before you reach the end zone and they've been at, they've kind of been a little unlucky to some degree on a couple, you know, I think about the Michigan or the Iowa game where they're going in to score and the, the, the exchange between McSorley and Sanders gets fumbled. Um, they got away with it on the, the knee barely being down on Saturday against uh, Wisconsin. But it's, 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 I think just kind of symptomatic of, of the offensive issues as a whole where they just, they don't catch the ball terribly consistently. They're not really good on third down. They're not, they're not hitting the big plays. And you add all those things up, and it's it, it, it's not surprising when you think of it that way, at least to me, that you're struggling to to score touchdowns. You're settling for field goals. You're seeing drive stall. You're punting a lot more than than you'd like because nothing that you do is going to lead to getting the ball down the field consistently. Yeah, and one thing that we, um, how do I say this? They really suck at getting to manageable third downs. Um, they are 120th nationally in third and short percentage. Only 5.8% of their offensive third downs are considered third and short. They, 66% third of uh no 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 I'm not 66% they're 66 nationally at getting into third and longs uh 49.6% of them are but then I look at their success rate on these downs and just their general success rate with stuff I mean offensively their success rate is 62nd nationally uh and as a reminder defined as 50% of the necessary yardage on first down 70% on second down 100% on third and fourth down so Having said that, they just general offensive uh, efficiency success rate, 42.6% of their offensive plays do what they need to do there. In the passing game, they are 75th at marginal, in marginal efficiency. They're passing down, as in, uh, passing down marginal efficiency, 124th. Their third and long success rate is 99th in the country. Their third and short success rate is 103rd in the country. Where they are getting to third downs, whether it is third and long or third and short, they are not good at executing. And you need those to extend drives. I mean, the Michigan drive chart, as we explained, or as we you know talked about in whatever capacity we've talked about it, is a lot of three plays two play, or three plays, four plays, five plays, four plays, three plays, four plays, that kind of just really gross stuff. And it's, when you're doing that, when you can't get, when you're not efficient passing the football, when you're not getting the necessary amount of yardage you need to get on, 
57.4% of your plays when you're not good at all on third down, when you are only converting third and short 62.5% of the time, that's a problem. And I don't know if this is on any one person, if this is a collective thing, what it is, but this is an issue that Penn State has had this year. It's really disappointing that Penn State has had it this year, and it's something that I'm not going to sit here and say fire Ricky Ronnie or anything like that, but it's something that if it cops up again next year, well, that's when you have to start considering major changes because if you can't get the job on third down, and I understand that a lot of third down is getting the job done on first and second down, but as the numbers show, no matter where Penn State is on third down, whether it's third and long or third and short, even third and medium, they're 67th nationally converting 42.9% of their third and mediums, you have to make plays. You have to be able to make plays, and you have to be able to convert those, and they just haven't been able to, and drives are stalling out because of it, and things are happening like they're scoring 22 points against Wisconsin. Nine of them are field off of field goals by Jake Pinniger. So... It's a concern. Uh, it's something that I, Matt, in these final two games, I would like to see them address. I really want these last two games, in addition to highlighting young guys, basically be figure out the best way to play the kind of situational football that even if Trace McSorley isn't there next year, you're going to have to play next year and you're going to have to execute next year on an offense where at any given time, 10 of the guys who are on the field are going to have to be able to make those kinds of plays uh, during the 2019 season. Yeah, and I think um, just in general that it's, it's it's a kind of a fascinating end of the season. I'm, I'm curious what, what Rutgers and Maryland did to deserve this other than taking a big paycheck from the Big Ten. But Rutgers finishes, uh, they've got in Michigan last week, and they've got Penn State this week, and then at Michigan State uh, to end the year. Maryland gets, uh, they, they traveled to Indiana where they uh, uh, nearly came back and, and upset the or not upset, I guess it would have been an upset, I don't know what the spread was, nearly beat the Hoosiers. But the week before that, they had Michigan State, and they finished with Ohio State at home, and then they traveled to Penn State. And the 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 question for them is just how how ready are they to to play that game away from home Thanksgiving weekend? They would have bowl eligibility potentially at stake, but for for reasons that are entirely understandable, it it has to have been an incredibly trying mm-hmm. year for them. And so, my my instinct is that Penn State's playing is this isn't my instinct. My my this is a hundred percent fact. They are playing a terrible Rutgers team on Saturday, a team that they should should win handily against, and they can do some stuff with some of those young guys like we've talked about a few times. And I think they're going to get a Maryland team that is going to be okay with their season ending at Penn State on, on Thanksgiving Saturday. So you have two games that are going to be very winnable. If you're not 9-3 and three to end the year, then something has gone horribly wrong, and, and our podcasts are going to be very sad. That's at, at one or two points uh, to close out the regular season, but it, it's an opportunity to, you know, maybe play your way back into a New Year's six game, 
certainly play your way and solidify yourself in a, a, a good bowl game and and really just give a guy like Trace McSorley the chance to to end his career the right, right way and give that next generation a chance to 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 play a, a couple of games, get their their feet a little more wet and and get ready for what I think you and I, Bill, both agree is has the potential to be a really, really special year next year um, if they can hold on to a couple guys and, and answer a couple questions that aren't nearly as, as big as they were going into this year. Yeah, plus, like, you know what, dude? Like, after the last couple of weeks, after what ended up being a bit of a nail-biter in a way against Wisconsin, really just since Illinois, it's been, quote, heartbreaking loss to Ohio State, heartbreaking loss to Michigan State, uh, close win that you didn't feel too terribly good about against Indiana, close win against Iowa, which was just, you know, it took everything they had, blown out by Michigan, a win over Wisconsin that despite the fact that it was 22-10, to 10, like, just never felt totally comfortable. Um, I would like it if Penn State went out and just kicked the piss out of Rutgers in Maryland. Just really remind us why... At the beginning of the year, it looked like this team had the potential to be really, really special. Um, I don't know if they will. I, I really want them to send Trace out on a high note. Uh, I think they probably should do that against Rutgers. I don't know if they will against Maryland because on one hand, while I can absolutely see them packing it up, I can also see them going, listen, we're playing for something bigger than ourselves. We're playing for... You know, Jordan McNair, we're playing for a university that has been hurting all year. Let's go out and let's get this big win over the school that we've always kind of measured ourselves up against. I could see that happening just as easily. So go out, just throttle these dudes, make it so you're you're sending Trace out on a high note, but also, like we said, fix and iron out whatever things have to be fixed and ironed out with the players who we know are going to be around next year and start to position yourself for, like we said, should be a very, 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 could be, I apologize, could be a very, very special 2019 campaign. So that, that you know, that's kind of just looking forward a little bit, a little more broadly. Um, after looking back at what was a nice little palate cleanser of a win against Wisconsin, uh, Two more games, win them, see what happens. Uh, you know, ending the year at regular season at uh, six and three in Big Ten play, and uh, nine and three on the season would be, you know, I don't know anyone that wouldn't feel great about that. Uh, make it so you're in a position to potentially be the final team that makes it to a New Year's Six Bowl, which that's not totally off the table and. Send guys like Trace McSorley out in the high note. Just have some fun these last couple of weeks and hope for the best. So hopefully uh, y'all enjoyed this edition of the podcast. Uh, as always, make sure you're checking us out on all of our social media channels. Make sure you're reading and supporting the site, sharing the stuff that we're doing out there. Uh, keep heading out. Keep buying some shirts. Uh, I'm sure we're going to have some kind... I, you know, Matt and I did not discuss this at all, but I'm sure we're going to have something uh, in the cards for Black Friday coming up. Uh, and if we don't, who cares? So, yeah, thank you very much uh, one more time for listening to this edition of Roar Lions Radio. For my co-host, Matt DeBear, I'm Bill DeFilippo. Take care, everyone.